0: Hi, welcome to this Gateway House podcast. My name is Subhashish. And today we have with us, Mr. Part Shah. He's the founder of Center for Civil Society. Uh, Mr. Shah, you were talking about, uh, you know, uh, applying learnings from behavioral economics for SMEs. Uh, If you could could explain to us how that's gonna help. I think, as you know,
1: there's a a lot of dimensions to behavioral economics. Uh Uh, One that uh, I was focusing on is the psychology of uh, scarcity. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, we know economics of scarcity. Obviously, mm-hmm. whole economics is uh, based on that. But the idea of a psychology of scarcity is quite new, mm-hmm. which comes from the behavioral economics sort of emphasis. right? And what we learned there, which has been done by Senthil, uh, Nathan and Harvard, Vichit uh, Banerjee at MIG, Duflo, MIT, and so the Poor Economics, the book they have written about their experiences about uh, RCTs. All of which actually talk about how the poor are making suboptimal decisions, mm-hmm. not because they lack, in a sense, their inherent capacity to make the decisions, mm-hmm. but the scarcity under which they live, the pressures of time and uh, demands of, sort of putting food on the table, mm-hmm. are such that that, in a sense, creates the conditions under which they live in suboptimal equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Right? and if you understand that scarcity, uh, the psychology of scarcity then we could then design our programs, design interventions in a way that that take into account Mm -hmm. how the choices would be made, Mm -hmm. right? So, good example, we think about all these, say, water purification technologies. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of research being done on simple ways to purify drinking water, right? But we have not done any research, how do people adapt Mm -hmm. or adopt Mm -hmm. that kind of technology, Mm -hmm. right? So unless we also understand the process of adoption mm-hmm. of a new way of doing things, a new technology, we would not be able to help the people. Mm-hmm. So you can have hundreds of different water purification technologies, none of which actually uh, would make a difference in lives of the poor because we have not understood how to integrate this technology in their lives, mm-hmm. the way they live, mm-hmm. the way they make decisions, mm-hmm. the scarcity of bandwidth, mm-hmm. mental bandwidth that they have. Right. So I think that's the focus of this part of the behavioral economics. My point here uh, is that this is mostly understood in terms of consumers mm-hmm. as individuals living their individual life which is consumption part of their life. We can take lessons uh, and apply, do some research in the producer part of it. Mm-hmm. So I as a producer uh, running uh, for example a micro enterprise or a small enterprise i am also facing very similar situation uh, of scarcity True. right and of resources of my own time of my own bandwidth right so how does that then in a sense compel me to take suboptimal decisions mm-hmm. right uh, and then how does that then affect my own success in the enterprise that i am running mm-hmm. right uh, so we know obviously that you know, Four out of five enterprises they start actually close down within three years, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's true across the world. Now, is that really true? And how far it is true for say micro enterprises? And is the reason because of lack of access to credit, mm-hmm. or are reasons quite different mm-hmm. that we have not not yet understood, mm-hmm. right? Uh, relating to what we learn uh, from the psychology of scarcity, mm-hmm. right? So applying those lessons and those un- that understanding to micro enterprises is what I think is very useful area of research, uh, building into how do we create opportunities for the poor to do well for themselves.
0: But isn't it, uh, you know, uh, what we have discussed so far, it it gives me an idea that people make suboptimal decisions about their lives or their careers or their jobs, uh, because they are financially unviable in their lives. Uh, But there are surely other, other reasons as well why they would make some optimal decisions. It's not only the monetary factors that make them mm. take those decisions. No, that's actually the point.
1: Yeah. It's not the monetary factor. Yeah. And therefore by spending more money, mm-hmm. you would not solve the problem. True. So it's not the issue of water technology mm-hmm. or making it available for free, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to charging some uh, money for it. Mm-hmm. So even if you make it available for free, even though it's maybe the world's, world's best technology that you can possibly imagine, it still may not be adopted mm-hmm. by the people for whom you are developing it mm-hmm. right and the reason is not money that they are not willing to pay money or they don't have the money yeah. reasons are very different yeah. is the choice metric mm-hmm. that they have mm-hmm. within which they make those choices mm-hmm. right another G- example I'll give you uh, Jeffrey Sachs actually got about a hundred million dollars mm-hmm. uh, to give away free mosquito nets mm-hmm. in Africa mm-hmm. right it made very good sense at one level yeah that if you give away from free mosquito net people would use it if they use mosquito nets effectively you pretty much eradicate some of the yes. vector borne diseases mm. right it didn't work that way even after spending 100 million dollars and giving away free mosquito net right most of them ended up being used as a fishing net right others were hardly ever used as as mosquito net right so it wasn't really giving them something even for free that's what you were doing. Even, even then you could not get them to, But to you and me looks like very common sense. Right? Why wouldn't you use mosquito net? True. Somebody's giving you for free, you know your kids are dying of malaria. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But the fact that they are not yeah. needs to be understood. Yeah. It's not just purely a irrational decision and we can say, oh, they are just being poor, irrational people. Mm-hmm. Right. So you understand why they are not using it mm-hmm. right? and what would then it take to get them to use it. Right? And one good example that came up in the whole mosquito net e- uh, experience that uh, some of the local entrepreneurs mm-hmm. took those free mosquito nets mm-hmm. and began using it, cutting in all of that in different shapes and sizes mm-hmm. they also colored some of them. <laughs> right Now just think about this to you and I, what would a mosquito net look like? Yeah. We sleep in a cot, so you have a sort of six by four mosquito net that you will hang yeah. through some rope yeah. on the ceiling right but most poor people don't have a cot to sleep on yeah. right they sleep on a floor there are six people in the in a small uh, 6 by ten room yeah. right How do you use mosquito net there of the size that is workable for a cot right? yeah. you can't yeah. right so lots of these issues are there. Right? So it wasn't just somehow matter of money as you said, right? Yeah. people giving away for free. It wasn't just being irrational about it, it just did not fit into their own world. Mm-hmm. right? And the private entrepreneurs made it fit. Mm-hmm. They cut, created different shapes and sizes. People like color. Mm-hmm. They gave them instead of white mosquito net, they made them colorful mosquito nets. And somehow people are now willing to pay. Yeah. To get the same mosquito mosquito net they had given away for free, (laughs) that they didn't use, (laughs) now they are paying (laughs) to, in a sense, buy back what they had given away.
0: So, is it is it like the private enterprise is the answer, or are we looking at a hybrid model that we call it like the PPP, public-private partnership? Then, how do we solve this problem?
1: I think it will vary from problem to problem. Hmm. I don't think there's one single solution. Either it's a private market, or a state, uh, or a PPP. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think each one would have a unique uh, contours, and which is actually the reason why this research is important. Mm-hmm. Right? Is to understand what stop mosquito net from being adopted. Mm. Maybe there will be different reasons why water purification technology is not being used. Mm-hmm. Right? We would not be apply the same lesson that worked for mosquito net, for example, mm-hmm. uh, to water purification. Mm-hmm. Right? So it requires a div- understanding. And so the idea basically is that you need to involve, which is the point about SMEs. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? You need to involve local entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and get them to think about: okay, Can I sell this product
0: mm-hmm.
1: even at subsidized rate? Yeah you can subsidize that. right? The cost is 10 rupees, you can say 8 rupees will be given as a subsidy, you only charge 2 rupees from the customer yeah. right? or even less than that. Yeah. Right? But the ha- using local entrepreneurs to understand the local markets mm-hmm. and local behavior yeah. right, is a far effective way yeah. than having NGOs True. from inter- international NGOs coming in True. and trying to address their problem. Yeah. Right? So that's certainly one clear lesson. Mm-hmm. And I see the local entrepreneur being the very good link in what we want to do in terms of the uh, micro and small enterprises mm-hmm. and how we want to solve some of these very mm-hmm. uh, intractable uh, problems of poverty. Mm-hmm. Right? How
0: does the technology fit into you know solving these problems?
1: Again I think a uh, good example is uh, just M-Paisa, mm-hmm. the mobile phone uh, money, right? Huge, I mean in Africa is used uh, uh, in very large proportion, right? Uh, we are not using that in India, unfortunately, Billadi, mm-hmm. uh, because of some of the RBI constraints. Uh, hopefully, with the new uh, banks, yeah. they are approved. Uh, some of those constraints will go away, yeah. right? Uh, but I think technology does play a very important role. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also plays an important role in a different way, which we usually don't think about as technological uh, sort of uh, intervention. So Uber and OLA, the yeah. two of the taxi aggregator services in India, which are the most uh, common now. Yeah. I saw an OLA ad, uh, huge billboard in Delhi yeah. in South Delhi, right? saying that if you have a car of your own and insurance for the car, we guarantee you rupees one lakh per month True. of income. Yeah. Right? Just imagine that. Imagine what happens to a sort of person who has some driving skills when he sees that ad. Who's currently making ten thousand a month barely, yeah. right? And sees So I think the technology can also help create those job opportunities, mm-hmm. right? Which were not there earlier, yeah. right? So Uber and Ola basically are sort of private transport yeah. for public use yeah. on public roads, yeah. right? So only yeah. like car is private, yeah. right? Yeah. The rest is all public, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, and so solving that problem of public sorry. transport. Yeah
0: but isn't it also like the government has to be two steps ahead of uh, you know of of these uh, technological advances that are happening because the, the example that you gave of uber and ola what happened afterwards was also very visible you know when those caps were banned and then people who had taken loans to buy cars were suddenly you know out of jobs and uh, delhi still has a problem because some uh, caps are still banned because you know they are saying it's uh, it's not a, a radio yeah. cab. It's, it's a, not a CNG. It's an app-based cab, and and all those things. So, so the norms and the rules of the land are not following, or or are slow in catching up with with, with the technological advances. That also creates a problem in,
1: in It does. It's a very good example. Ola, Uber give you a very good example of how the old system of regulation mm-hmm. uh, could become a hindrance mm-hmm. uh, for the new technology to come up, True. right? And this is exactly what's happening in that market. True. The sort of downside also of that same thing, the old system of regulation had created this rent, mm-hmm. right? So you required to invest in your own taxi fleet, mm-hmm. hire your own drivers, yeah. right? That was part of the norm yeah. in to get a taxi license, yeah. right? So here you had people who invested uh, in buying those taxi fleets, training drivers and hiring them right? and paying some of the under the label laws, yeah. right? Suddenly, you found a new way of delivering the same service. which Doesn't require to buy a taxi. Doesn't have to have your own driver, right? You don't have to pay anything to that person except for the services he provides, right? Yeah. So there is, of course, loss mm. to the existing uh, players, yeah. right? And you can't deny that there is a loss. Yeah. Right? The challenge for now is to figure out yeah. that you don't want to stop the new technology either, yeah. right? Because that certainly promises far better gains, yeah. right? At the same time, how do we? Address the losses which current players are going to suffer, right. I and mean, that's the uh, government's role.
0: Yeah. Uh, one last question for me: If you could explain to me, what are uh, you know inclusive models that uh, Center for Civil Society is working towards?
1: Uh, I think largely our work is with the street vendors mm-hmm. uh, and uh, with the forest dwelling communities. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so one of the two, three sort of different models that work in this area. Uh, one is sort of uh, what they call producer associations Mm -hmm. or enterprises Mm -hmm. where, for example, the small artisans can come together, Mm -hmm. create their own sort of company, Mm -hmm. uh, which then negotiates and does all the marketing Mm -hmm. uh, and selling of the product, which is difficult to do for each one individually. Mm -hmm. But by coming together, they're able to leverage uh, their numbers, so very simple model. We build the whole milk industry on that cooperative model, right, mm-hmm. which is a similar idea that how producers can come together mm-hmm. and create a sort of uh, market for themselves. Mm-hmm. right? Which is slightly different than uh, what, uh, for example, the contracting out model is, mm-hmm. where a large corporate would contract for specific services or goods, yeah. like uh, potatoes that uh, Pepsi had done earlier. Yeah. right? Uh, Walmart does that with many of the other goods. Right there in that model, what happens is the focus of the corporate is to uh, drive the biggest bargain. Mm-hmm. Right. So how do I get cheapest uh, service or product uh, from this group of suppliers? Yes. Right. Uh, and therefore, it's a sort of, in a sense, antagonistic model. Right. Be, be both sides have to fight. Mm-hmm. So by, in a sense, to balance the large purchasing power of a corporate, mm-hmm. you create a sort of a large supply pool of suppliers Mm -hmm. who can also negotiate uh, whether they would want to Mm -hmm. pay that, accept that price or not, Mm -hmm. right? Which individually they would not be able to do, right? And so the in a sense is just balancing the market power, right? Uh, And it works quite effectively in many areas. Mm -hmm. Of course, not in all areas, but in many areas it does work very Mm -hmm. effectively, right? The second one is being a small enterprise, how can you make the smallness which is a necessity in a way, into a virtue. Mm-hmm. So how can, can you think about things that small enterprise can do, which large would not be able to do, yeah. or would not be able to do in a cost-efficient manner, right? So where are the advantages of being small, yeah. right? And how do you then capitalize on those advantages? How do you create a business model around that, yeah. right? Uh, and I think uh, quite a g- good examples around the world actually uh, that illustrate how this works, right? One clear example in India that works very well is poultry farming. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it's a small plot of land that you have, which may not be able to do much in terms of producing grain or yeah. even vegetables and fruits, yeah. but poultry is something that you can manage. Yeah. So, if you have about thousand chicks in a way, yeah. it's a good optimal size. Yeah. It doesn't require a large plot of land, yeah. right? And you are able to use that to produce uh, something which is a higher market value. True. Because this is now not sort of factory style production. Is more open land, the chicks are walking and uh, you know running around, right? And you are using their eggs and meat, right? Which is high market value, right? The free-range chicken, as it is called, right? Uh, And so therefore now you are taking advantage, in a sense, of the smallness uh, and converting that uh, in a necessity Mm -hmm. into a virtue, Mm -hmm. right? And so can we think along those lines in other areas? Mm -hmm. So that's I think the other business model. Uh, which is quite inclusive and works very effectively. Yeah,
0: it it sounds very familiar to me with you know the, with the talk of the town today that's called sustainable development or sustainability of businesses. Inclusive model sounds something very similar to sustainability. The definition size. Is, am I correct or am I too far?
1: I think as we uh, a lot of people discussed uh, at different points in time, right. That there are different ways of defining sustainability. Journalists mm-hmm. uh, define in terms of environmental resources. Yeah. right? If you define in other ways, then of course everything becomes part of the larger <laughs> mandate of making it sustainable. Right? So if you include financial uh, terms as well as human progress and levels of uh, welfare into that, then obviously it is a sustainable model.
0: Thank you. You have been listening to the Gateway House podcast. You can find us and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Thank you.